Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Chapter 8, we're going to actually look at one verse for the time being. That'd be verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, a verse that probably many of you are very familiar with. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the word of the Lord. Obvious, um, R.C. Sproul, I'm going to jump right in there and just tell you what he said. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, um, said this. Obviously, if God is for us, the whole world can be against us because man in his revolt against God is not, not only protests against his creator, but is against all of the redeemed. Implicit in the apostles' statement is not just who can be against us, but who can possibly stand against us? This is, of course, a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. No one can stand against us if God is standing with us. An aphorism that once, that, that since has become something of a cliche goes like this. One person with God on his side is a majority against all the rest of the human race. I want to welcome you back to our series titled The Hope of Christmas. As you know, that we've been taking a break from the Gospel of Mark for the Christmas season, and again, I want to remind you of the three reasons why we're doing that. Number one, this is the time of year that we celebrate Christmas, and Christmas is a celebration of the fact that God himself came into the world to be with us. Christmas is about the incarnation of Christ. It's not just about a baby being born. It is about God himself coming to the earth to be with us. Which leads then to the second reason why we are in this series. The incarnation of Christ is the hope that we cling to. Because the fact that God himself came into the world, he did it for a reason. He came to rescue us on a rescue mission to save us. That is our hope. And then number three, the third reason, the reason why we're in this series, is if there's anything that the world needs right now, It is hope, and not just any hope, but the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. And in the first part of the series, we talked a lot about the external things that remind us of our need for our hope, the fact that we live in a fallen, broken world, a world that's filled full of fallen, broken people, or the fact that we are surrounded by so much uncertainty and turmoil and hatred and fear, the world around us reminds us continually of our need for hope. We also talked about how the world itself is searching for hope, right? but it's doing so in all the wrong places. The world looks to the government for hope. It looks to politicians. It looks to money. It looks to vain philosophy for hope. It looks to science for hope. It looks to other people for hope. But the ultimately, what we come to understand is none of those things will satisfy the longing within us for a real, enduring hope. And the truth is, there is within everyone a longing for hope. The longing within all of us that all things would be made right at some point. A longing where there would be a time or a place where there is no more pain or sorrow or tears or death or hatred or strife or cancer or injustice. All of us long for that. But nothing in this world can fill that longing. The longing that we have is universal amongst all people. But it can only be filled by Christ and Christ alone. And we talked about the fact that the hope of Christmas is the hope that guarantees that those who have this longing, right, that if we are in Christ, that longing will be, without question, satisfied and fulfilled. Because Christ came into the world to be with us and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves so that we might be reconciled back to God in a relationship. That Christ came to rescue us so that one day we can stand in his presence with no fear and no shame 
and live forever in his presence with him and with those who've gone before us where there is no influence of sin or effects of sin to damage our relationships anymore. The hope of Christmas is that one day God's future redemptive work will be completed, right? And those who trust in Christ will experience the fullest fulfillment of that blessed hope. But as we talked about last week, the hope of Christmas is not just future, though. It's not for just then, at some point in time. The hope of Christmas is also with us here and now. Because not only are we saved in the past from the penalty of our sins, and not only are we saved in the future from the presence of sin, we are being saved right now in this moment from the power of sin. Because not only was Christ present in the world in the past to pay for sins, and not only will Christ be present with us in the future in glory, but Christ is present right now within each one of us. Christ, in a real sense, is with us in this moment. You see, the hope of Christmas is the ongoing presence and the power of Christ to save us. And we are being completely saved by Christ, past, future, and present. And so our hope is one is the one who began the good work in us. We'll be faithful to complete that work. And so to quickly summarize where we've been in the last couple of weeks, the hope of Christmas is in the name Emmanuel, God with us, and with us in every conceivable possible way. And being with us, he has done for us and continues to do for us and will continue to do for us all the things that we can't do for ourselves. Praise the Lord for that. The hope of Christmas is a truth that salvation in every possible sense is completely and totally the work of God. And because of that, your hope never rests upon you and what you can do or can't do, but upon the one who came to be with you and to save you, and that is Christ our King. Which then leads right where we need to be for our text today, which says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? If our hope is in Christ, God in the flesh, who lived the perfect life on our behalf, who died to make payment for our sins, who rose proving that, this, that sin and death had been conquered, and is right now in this moment interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, if He is for us, then who could possibly be against us? Who could possibly do anything to take away the hope that we have in Him? And the answer, obviously, is no one. No one can take from us the hope of Christmas. No matter what they do to us, no matter how hard things are, nothing in the world can extinguish the hope that you have in this moment in Christ. Now, this verse right here by itself, I don't know for you, but for me, is a great comfort. It's a very comforting verse, as many verses the Bible are. And in fact, I would, I would think, or I would hope that we should aspire to memorize verses like this, and that we would build within ourselves a treasury in our hearts of these kinds of verses in order that we might be encouraged and reminded of our hope and where our hope lies and the certainty, the absolute certainty of that hope. But brothers and sisters, we must also remember that every verse in the Bible is not unto itself an isolated singular truth. Every verse in the Bible is not an independent statement of truth on its own. It doesn't stand by itself. Instead, every verse in the Bible is connected to a larger context. And every verse is connected to a broader theme. And every verse derives its fullest meaning from the verses that are around it. And oftentimes I think we can miss the theme, or we can miss the context because we simply just read the verse on its own. I know that in my past I've done the same with this verse. Now this verse by itself, I will tell you, is truth. 
And this verse by itself communicates important things about the hope that we have. And this verse by itself, all by itself, is encouraging. But if you read this verse in a context, this verse actually becomes even more meaningful and even more encouraging and even more hope-inspiring. In fact, this verse begins with a phrase, What shall we say? What then shall we say to these things? You see, there's more here than simply the statement of, if God is for us, who can be against us? The statement actually is a response to a question. And the question is, what shall we say to these things? Which I think should cause us to ask another question. What things? What are these things that Paul is referring to? What, is Paul refer- what Paul is referring to is really the truth of the gospel and the secure hope that we have in Christ because of the gospel and the truth about what God has done and what God is doing to make that hope secure for us. And what we need to realize is that this is a letter to the Romans. It is a letter. Right? It's not simply a collection of proverbs or independent statements of truth. It is a letter by which Paul is communicating to the Roman church in very clear, explicit detail what the gospel is. In fact, It is believed by most theologians that without the book of Romans, we would really miss important foundational parts of the gospel. Romans is the best explanation of the gospel front to back in the New Testament. And as such as a letter, it is the clearest explanation of the gospel. And Paul begins his letter with the statement of truth that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And I want you to take that and rest on that. You are not the power of God for salvation. I want you to take that responsibility and take it off your shoulders. Your job is to sow the seed and preach the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not how charismatic you are, not how how wonderful you are, not how great at explaining things you are. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It is the power of God. And then he goes and he begins to explain in vivid detail what the gospel is. And he begins with the bad news of the gospel. He says right, that the gospel tells us that all mankind has fallen short of God's glorious standard, and not in a little way, but in a huge way. We didn't miss the mark by a little bit. We have missed the mark completely. In fact, those of us who, who didn't know God before, at one point we were suppressing the truth about God in our unrighteousness. And as such, we were unable to save ourselves. There's nothing we could do to make ourselves right before God. And because of that... The weight of God's condemnation and His righteous judgment and wrath were upon us. Mankind was completely hopeless and helpless on his own is the truth of the gospel. You can't get to the good news without the bad news. But then Paul then tells us the good news. He says, but God in His abounding grace and His love and His mercy, just because He loved us, not because there was anything inherently good about us, made a way for us to be justified or saved from the penalty of our sin, that He made a way for us to be glorified at one point in the future where we'll be saved from the presence of sin, but He also made a way for us to be sanctified where we're being progressively saved from the power of sin. And all of this salvation, reconciliation with God, eternal life with Him, our adoption with Him into His family, and the enduring hope that we can hold on to here and now, all of that is made available to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the message that Paul is telling us, that we're not saved by our religious abilities. We're not saved by the works of the law. We're not saved by being good enough. We're saved only by faith in Christ. That is all. And so Paul makes it clear what the hope of the gospel is. And if that were not enough to to make this glorious truth inspire us to worship God for His goodness and live forever in the presence of His love, Paul then goes further to make a point to explain to us that not only is our hope of salvation true, but he also then explains that the hope that we have in Christ is absolutely immutable, unchanging, and unfailing. For those who are in Christ, your hope is guaranteed. And I know that we all have a sense of that. 
being Baptists, we have a sense of the security of the believer. But we need to take this truth right here, and we need to etch it deep in our hearts and our consciences. Because look around us. Look what the world outside is telling us. The world is telling us that nothing is immutable. The world is telling us nothing is unchanging. The world is telling us that there's nothing unfailing. Everything changes. Everything evolves. Nothing is stable. Nothing is secure. I mean, just look at the year that we have had. Just as something as simple as plans for what we're going to do for the church for the year. If there's anything that, that this year has taught us that everything can change in an instant and more dramatically than you could ever expect. I mean, just think about where we were in January. In January, I and Kim and McKaylee and Hugh and Mike and Sarah, we boarded planes and we flew to Atlanta, Georgia, where we were in a room, a crowded room, with 5,000 other people, right? And we were singing our hearts out to the Lord every hour on the hour, listening to preaching, Right? And we're walking in crowded areas and bumping into people as we're looking at the different books and looking at the booths and things like that. No social distancing, no masks, no nothing, and nobody thought anything about it. Think about doing that right now. Seriously, you walk into Walmart right now and see somebody without a mask, you go, it's just, everything has changed. Everything just seems so surreal now. I mean, people right now don't even know if they should shake hands when they see each other or hug. In fact, I saw just this morning, I thought it was a joke, but it's actually serious. They, they, they call it a hug jacket. It, it's, it's, it's like cellophane plastic that you put on over your hands, and it has a hood you put all over your face, which I'm instantly thinking, that we've been told all my life, never put plastic over your face, right? They put this cellophane plastic over their face so they can hug each other. I'm going, this is not reality. It can't be. But they're selling them online. I mean, in the pictures where people like, like, like hugging each other like it's, like it's a real thing. People don't know if they should hug each other or shake hands. Everything is so different. The way that we shop has changed. The way that we meet new people has changed. I mean, like there's almost like this exchange when you meet somebody new, you're like, okay, are you a handshaker? Are you okay with that? Can we bump? I mean, what do we do, you know? Everything's changed. The way we educate our children has changed. And I'm telling you, if there's a tragedy that's ha happening in our country right now, it is that right now. I'm telling you, as a school board member, I have, I have been vehemently opposed to what, what, the, what California is forcing schools to do right now. Our children are suffering in ways that we cannot even possibly imagine. Grades are falling. Kids are having emotional trauma. Like kids are suffering through depression and anxiety. Right? Also, kids are getting out of shape because most of these kids in Boron play every sport. They go from one sport to the next, and they depend on that. Right? That's, that's just part of their everyday activity. You take that away, right? And, in, and suddenly they're, they're, they're going to be facing health issues, right? Our social customs have changed. And what is worse is how people are treating each other today and how that's changed. It didn't seem very long to me that people could honestly disagree about things and be civil and even still be friends. I mean, I, I grew up in an era where there was a little bit more kind of friction between people, but it wasn't like, again, it was always like you respected your elders, even if they were just dumb as a box of rocks. You still respected them because they were your elders. You know what I mean? You respected people for the position that they held because they were, they were worthy of that. You respected authority. And, and the thing is, if somebody didn't see things the way you did, then you were okay. It was okay. You could still live in the same world. Today, that is different. Because now it seems if you don't believe what other people believe, about things like gender, or marriage, or sexuality, or heaven forbid, presidential candidates, right? Or party affiliation, or wearing masks, or not wearing masks, or keeping churches open, or closing them. If you disagree about those things, there are people who will begin to label you, and to call you names, and, and, and they will shun you. People that they call their friends. I've been told myself personally, that we're in this building right now because I'm trying to make a political statement. I have no political aspirations at all. I know God's people need to be together is what I know. And I do know that there is an interest that, that our government has to separate us. They separated us during Easter. They separated us during important parts of our lives. 
I've seen people go to, not go to funerals. I've seen people not attend weddings. Right? Even now they're saying you can't be together with your family for Christmas. We're here because this is where I believe God wants us to. But now there's still, I have had my, my share of pushback on that. People that I know and love and respect. It seems like we, the people, it's okay to be nasty to each other. You can talk trash to each other and talk down to each other. Everything seems to be changing. And nothing around us seems to be stable at all. Not health, obviously. That's always been an illusion, by the way. You know, Because health comes and goes. Not our economy, or our culture, or even families nowadays. Not even the form of government that we have. As we can see, like things are rapidly changing. Many of the institutions that we looked for, looked to for, for we looked to, many institutions we depended on for security that once seemed rock solid and immovable in our world have clearly become unstable and are on shaky ground. There seems to be nothing in the world around us that's beyond failing. Remember the in the uh, two, in the mid two thousands when they started talking about businesses too big to fail? That's like the, really the foreshadow of, of how unstable things can be. But Paul, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8, he tells us the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that he granted us by the gospel itself, is in fact an, an enduring and unchanging and unfailing hope. And he begins to unpack this all the way back in verse Nine. So what I'd like to do for you today is we're going to read this together. But we need to keep in mind that this letter was meant to be read aloud to the church in Rome. And because it's a letter, it's meant to be read not in simple, small, bite-sized chunks. It's meant to be read in complete thoughts. Right? That way you get a full sense of what Paul is trying to communicate, and, and that way you hear the overarching point that he's making. Now with that, we don't have time to read the whole letter, which would actually be the best way to do this. Right? But I want to read a pretty good-sized portion of chapter 8 for you. And, and as, as we do, what I want you to do is I want you to hear the argument that Paul is making. I want you to hear the flow of his thought. So I want to begin in verse 9, and we'll go all the way through 39. And I'm going to read it without stopping, and I'm not going to comment on it right now, because I want you to hear Paul's thoughts kind of build on one another. And what I want you to hear is the underlying assurance that Paul is trying to communicate to us about our hope in Christ. And so bear with me, reading in verse 9, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow members with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if the hope, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he just also justified. And those whom he also justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also, how will he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is the context of this verse. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? You see, the security of our hope rests completely on God and who He is and what He has done and what He's continuing to do for us to this very day. Now, there's certainly a lot to talk about in this text. In fact, uh, once we finish the Gospel of Mark, I think that we might even begin to work our way through the book of Romans. And if we do, we'll, have, we'll take some time to unpack all these things in greater detail. But for today and for this series about Christmas, there are four things I want to briefly touch on that I believe that all of us need to keep in mind as we're wrapping up the volatile year 2020, as we stand here now facing 2021 gun-shy, knowing that it's uncertain. There are four things that I believe that we need to hold on to that I know will strengthen you and give you a greater confidence and commitment to the hope that you have in Christ that will allow you to be a conqueror, more than a conqueror, through Christ who, who has strengthened you. Number one, I want you to see is the fact that those who are in Christ are secure in their hope because they have been given the security of the Holy Spirit Himself. This is something we don't talk about near often enough. Paul says, beginning in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact... The Spirit of God dwells in you. He goes on and says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life, the, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ 
Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Notice that Paul repeats this statement, the Spirit dwells in you, in this short text, three times. You see, your hope is secure because God the Holy Spirit has come to take up residence and to dwell in our lives. If you were in Christ, if you were a believer, the Holy Spirit is living in you. In fact, Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit in you, if the Spirit does not dwell in you, you are not in Christ. This is something we need to heat, we need, we, we need to take to heart. If you're a Christian, I've had, the question was asked of me by our pastor in Kenya. You know, he asked, somebody asked him a question. So does that mean if a person gets saved, then the Holy Spirit comes later? That is not what the Bible teaches. If you were in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you the moment you believe. The truth is, once you hear the gospel and repent and believe, the Holy Spirit immediately comes to live inside of you. The moment you believe, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The moment you are saved, the Holy Spirit lives and resides in you and is himself the guarantee of your hope. In fact, Paul writes a little bit more about this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, in him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul further writes about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The truth is, you should be strengthened in this truth that God is giving you the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is a guarantee of your hope will never ever fail. You receiving the Holy Spirit at your conversion is the guarantee that the hope that we have in Christ is completely secure. In fact, Bodhi Bauckham actually taught on this subject, and he made a point to talk about how the fact that the word guarantee here is related in the Greek to the word pledge or deposit or earnest, which we all kind of know something about an earnest deposit. We've heard about earnest money. It's this idea when you go to, like, to buy a house or something and you put a deposit down and, and it's signifying that you're committed to, to completing the terms of the contract. You're committed to buying the property. I'm putting this money down as, as an earnest, as a guarantee. Right? It's a promise. And the idea is if you fail to keep your promise, then you forfeit what was guaranteed. This is the same idea that Paul is communicating just about the Holy Spirit. Well, what does God then put forward as a deposit in us? What does he put forward as an earnest, that, that guarantee? What is the guarantee that God gives us? None other than the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself. I want you to think about the weight of that. God gives to you an earnest deposit into your hearts. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of the promise that he has made to save you. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a guarantee that God will be true to his word. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, in the words of Odie Bauckham, that means God would sooner cease to be God rather than you lose your salvation and lose your hope. That is the truth. God would cease to be God, right, long before he would default on his promise to save you. The Holy Spirit is guaranteed. Your hope is guaranteed by God himself. There is no other greater guarantee. The Holy Spirit is living in you. The Holy Spirit is guiding you and shaping you and encouraging you and convicting you and giving you the assurance that God will finish in you the work that he began. But this also leads to the second thing that we need to see in the text. Not only does the Holy Spirit secure our hope, but so does our adoption into the family of God. Because notice Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And he doesn't leave it there. He says, the spirit himself 
the one that He gave us a guarantee, bears witness within our spirit, within our hearts, that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then we are heirs. And not just heirs, but fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. One of the greatest doctrines of salvation that I think we overlook so often is the doctrine of our adoption into the family of God. This is the truth that we should be shouting from the rooftops. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, you are and once you are justified, not only are you dwelt by the Holy Spirit, but you now have been officially, completely adopted into the family of God. And you were adopted not by legal means, but by God himself. As John reminds us, he, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were, not, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God, God himself. Those who trust in Christ instantly become children of the one true living God. I want you to think about this. Right? This, is, this is one of those ones that just blows me away. It's, it strikes me sometimes. God, holy, righteous, just, un, unfathomable in many ways. The creator of the universe who stands outside of the universe. He takes those of us who were once his enemies, who hated his guts, who were rebels against him, and he doesn't just create a peace treaty with us. He doesn't just end the hostility that, that we have towards him and him towards us. He doesn't just bring us into his presence as strangers and say, okay, I've saved you now, just leave me alone. I don't even want to talk to you. Right? He doesn't even like treat us like those parts of our family we don't even want to talk to. He comes in and makes us members of his family, his children, full-fledged members of the family of God. And, and this, this should be meaningful to us, right? Because this time of year is, is where we're thinking more about family, right? Many of us, this time of year, want to spend time with our families. This is where we get together with children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles. This is where we slow down and spend extra time. This is where we want to see their faces light up with their Christmas presents. We want to see the smiles. One of the frustrating things is the government's telling us we can't gather together with our, our families. And many people are missing that close relationship with those that they love. But family, as we know, is a special relationship. One of real belonging, one of deep intimacy. And though we may not be able to be with the physical people we love, there is a longing to be with them. Well, God has given us the gift of being one of his beloved family. And I want you to understand, again, it's not just family like a distant relative. We all have cousins we never talk to. We have family members we see on Facebook that we don't have anything to know, we don't know anything about their lives beyond that. We all have like you know creepy uncle that nobody wants to talk to, right? Or you know Aunt Karen who wants to like gripe about everything. We, your beloved children of God, think about how you feel about your little children. You're adopted by God as His children with all the benefits of being a child included, and with the guaranteed inheritance. And I want you to notice, when your fellow heirs with Christ himself is what Paul says. Right? In some ways, we are Christ's brother, not spirit brother like some people would say. That we're given that status, that we're one, that he came as a human being and, and was the first fruits, bringing many sons to glory. We are guaranteed an inheritance in the family of God. And brothers and sisters, as the world turns darker, and as things around us become more and more surreal, the truth that you need to anchor your heart to is the truth that God himself has made you individually a bona fide member of his family. You are a child of God. If you leave here not remembering anything else, remember that you are a child of the holy, righteous God. If you're in Christ, you're one of his children. And again, this is not a legal arrangement. This is an intimate relationship. 
The Holy Spirit bears witness to us and enables us to cry out to God in the most intimate terms. Abba, Father. God, by his own power and his own choice and his own will, has adopted you. And one of the things that we need to understand about the culture at that time and what they would have understood in the first century when he wrote this is that adoption legally in the Roman culture was immutable. If you adopted someone, that was for life. If you adopted someone, you were not allowed to disown them in the future. You, they were even better than sons in some respects. Adoption was permanent and an enduring arrangement. And by the way, it's the same with God. If you're in Christ, God has permanently and eternally adopted you as one of his children. And that's something that can never be taken from you. It's something that can never be changed. It's a guarantee that, that, that can never be destroyed. And, and again, God would cease to be God long before he would turn his back on you. In fact, he turned his back on his beloved son so that he could adopt you. Now, if your adoption and indwelling of the Holy Spirit were not enough to convince you of the security of the hope that you have in Christ, then how about the fact that both God the Son and God the Spirit intercede for you before the Father? I don't know if you've ever really realized that. It's easy to miss if you break this up into chunks. But notice what Paul says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who knows, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Very clearly, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us is interceding for us before God, communicating even the deepest reaches of our hearts that we can't even possibly put into words. You ever get to that place where you know you need to pray, but you just can't? All you can do is groan because your heart's so broken? The Holy Spirit knows exactly what's going on with you and intercedes before the Father for you. But then Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Not only does the Holy Spirit intercede for us, but so does Christ himself. And I want you to think about the implications of this. Two of the three members of the, of the Trinity are actively interceding on your behalf before the Father. Have you ever really thought about that? The Holy Spirit is in us right now interceding for us before God. Christ, our advocate, and our atonement for our sins is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us right now. And notice it says that this intercession is according to the will of God. It is the very will of God that the Spirit and the Son advocate for you right before the Father. What an incredibly awe-inspiring truth that this is taking place right now. If you're in Christ right now, in this moment, the Holy Spirit and God the Son are interceding on your behalf before the Father. You see, we not only are you never alone in your life, because God is with you, but you always have advocates pleading your case for you. Now, this doctrine of intercession by itself is worth spending many, many weeks on. There's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot of implications to think through. Right? But I want, what I want you to do is allow the weight of this to settle onto your hearts. I want this truth to settle in and overwhelm your mind. Because think about this. Who in the world could possibly get in between you and God if those are your intercessors? Who could ever destroy the hope that you have in Christ? Who could stand against you when God the Son and God the Holy Spirit intercede on your behalf before God the Father? There is not a greater advocate in the universe. There's no more powerful force in the universe. Do you not understand that you have the greatest ally there is to have? You have all the members of the Trinity 
working together for your good. In fact, that's, this doctrine here helps us to see that salvation is not simply the work of Christ alone. I think that many of us as Christians, we hear a lot about Jesus, and it almost is like Jesus single-handedly saved us by himself, but that's not how it is. Salvation is the work of the Trinity. Salvation is the work of the entire Godhead. Salvation is the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which reminds us of the covenant of redemption when, when, when God in eternity past decreed a plan that he would redeem his people for himself. And Christ agreed at that time that he would secure this redemption by his life, death, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit agreed to come and actually apply that redemption to us by changing our hearts and, and convicting of our sin and then indwelling us, transforming us into the image of Christ. Every one of them are involved in this. In fact, Paul tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. God the Father decreed the plan of salvation. Jesus executed the plan of salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies the plan of salvation in our lives. The entire Trinity is involved in guaranteeing your hope. That is how secure your hope is. But again, if that were not enough to make you confident, if that were not enough to give you strength to carry on as the world around you makes less and less sense, because it does, if that were not enough to keep your eyes on the hope of Christmas, there's one last thing, one last point that guarantees your hope and that your hope would never fail. And that is the foundational truth of the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 28 with me. And you can recite this by memory. And we know. Stop, stop right there. We know. It's not a wish. It's not we hope. It's not maybe. It's not like we know, kind of. We know with all of our hearts and minds. We know fully, completely. We are convinced. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The promise in this text, and the promise that many of us hold on to in very difficult times, the promise that many of you are holding on to right now, is the truth that God himself works all things, even the worst of things, even the seemingly unpredictable things. He works all of them out for our good. And he does so not simply because he's wise, and not simply because he is powerful, and not simply just because he's good. He does so because he's completely and totally sovereign and in control. In the last two years, as we've made our way through the book of Mark, if there is a truth that we have come face to face with, over and over and over again is what? The truth of the sovereignty of God. That he is completely in control of everything, including salvation. As R.C. Sproul said, there is not one maverick molecule outside of the sovereign will of God. Nothing that is beyond his control. Right? It is God who himself works all things out. It is God who calls us according to his own purpose. It is God who, who has predestined us. It is God who has justified us. It is God who will finish his work and glorify us. And because of that, we can confidently build our life on the promise because we because he's completely in control, which means we can depend on the fact that God will keep his promises that he has made. There's one person that can keep his promises, it's him. And in light of these truths, in light of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or in that our adoption is into the family of God and the intercession of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit on our behalf, and in light of the sovereignty of God, in light of all of these things, we now return to our text which says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Brothers and sisters, this is the truth you need to memorize. 
In fact, I would say that this is truth. What you need to start is a new tradition right now for Christmas. You go to your calendar on December 25th, and you write in that calendar, right, if God is for us, who could be against us? And then set a reminder every year from now on that every year you can be reminded of this truth. Because this is the promise of Christmas. If God himself is with us, and if he is for us, no one and nothing can stand against us. As R.C. Sproul says, I want to remind you again, obviously if God is for us, the whole world can be against us because man, in his revolt against God, not only protests against his creator, but is against all the redeemed. Implicit, <clears throat> excuse me, implicit in the apostle's statement is not just who can be against us, but who could possibly stand against us. This is, of course, a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. No one can stand against us if God is standing with us. I want you to hear me on this. God is standing with us. If you're in Christ, God is standing with you. And because of that, your hope will never fail you. Your hope is completely secure. Your hope is immutable. No matter what the world does, no matter what happens to you, our country can descend into the depths of communism. Our government can make preaching illegal. Our culture can marginalize us and even squeeze us out of the economy and make us poor. Mobs can beat us. Our families themselves can betray us and hate us. Our neighbors can turn us in. But all the worst-case scenarios, all the worst-case scenarios cannot overcome this truth. Because in the end, all the world does to us will, will prove, ultimately be pointless. Because God is with us, presently with us, and he is for us. And because of that, our hope is secure. The hope of Christmas endures. And that is why Paul says, then, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And because of that, we can confidently, this Christmas season, with Paul, say, and also beyond, for I am sure, I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nor anything else in all of creation, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, God is with you. He is for you. He came to save you. This is your hope, and that hope never fails. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.